Hey everyone, we are back again. Today's episode is brought to you um, by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment extraordinaires. I would say they didn't pay me to say that, but they do pay my wages, so yeah. On the show today, we have Tom Castle. Um, he's a strategy principal at a company called Futurist. Um, they are a software engineering and innovation consultancy uh, who work across Europe. Tom's career is uh, actually from kind of a service design and UX background, um, but he's now focusing heavily on AI, um, and he's very active on kind of speaking engagements and thought leadership around um, AI but also service design and UX so I'm um, really interesting guy coming from a, a slightly different angle when it comes to um, data so uh, look forward to chatting to him so please uh, please welcome Tom Castle to the podcast welcome to the podcast Tom thanks for having me no worries we always kind of start roughly around the world of education and um, what, what people did to kind of get into the first role mostly because I like the kind of diverse background that most people come from and no exception from from kind of what what you did and then ended up doing so you did an electronic engineering degree right yeah that's right so i think all the way through my sort of younger years i was i loved taking things apart understanding <laughs> how they worked and then attempting to put them back together and building things and yeah really all the way through my sort of secondary school career i, I really wanted to be an engineer and and particularly sort of electronics was my fascination so that led to my degree, um, electronic engineering, which I did at Warwick way back in the late 90s. And yeah, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent since then, but that was how it all started for me. <laughs> yeah, nice. I'm always jealous of people like you that love kind of like ripping things apart and then they're able to put it back together because like that's so far away from any of my skills. It's not even funny. And I, I get a lot of slag and even just around the house that I either get my father-in-law or my wife to do all the DIY. And it's, it's not an exaggeration. Do you think that background and kind of interest in picking things apart uh, and putting them back together. Do you think that helped in some way within kind of, because I mean, we'll go on to it, but you moved into service design, UX, AI. There's kind of elements of that in there, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Electronic engineering is essentially kind of applied physics and some computer science. Um, I think it's probably quite different now for people going through university than it was back then. But a lot of that sort of engineering mindset has been really useful throughout my whole career. The ability to sort of understand complex systems and complex problems from a sort of a service design perspective in particular has been really useful. And then some of the more technical side, the ability to understand what data scientists are talking about and turn that into business speak has been a really useful kind of aspect of that. And yeah, data scientists are often quite surprised when I start quizzing them on details of algorithms and stuff that they generally don't expect to get from people like me. So, yeah, that's that's nice been really bit. useful. It's almost like uh, pretending you don't understand the language when someone's speaking a different language, but you actually do know it. So you can have a yeah, ace up your sleeve if you need it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it went well over my eyes. <laughs> um, and I think, did you spend a couple of years before you... Um, kind of got into projects and program management which we'll go on to did you spend a couple of years as an electronics engineer is that right yeah briefly i i was through university i was lucky enough to get sponsored by a company that that no longer exists but called um marconi who built telecoms hardware and i did a year year out with them at university and then went back to work with them just after graduating um unfortunately that was right at the height of the first dot-com bubble burst in what 2001 and at that time being an engineer wasn't a particularly exciting career path. There weren't a lot of growth opportunities. And I was surrounded by loads of really talented engineers who had been doing that their whole careers and just hadn't been able to progress anywhere. And so sort of a culmination of things came together and I had an opportunity to join graduate program on a, for one of the banks here in London. 
and that was where I jumped to banking and it took me a long while to escape. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually my next note was, uh, is potentially an understatement, but you, you spent kind of a pretty big chunk of your career in financial services and we are going to do a bit of a whistle stop. So uh, it will almost make it sound like it was quicker than it was and, and you didn't do as much as you have, but it kind of ranged from project management, program management, and then the last role before what you're doing now, uh, kind of Nat West is a head of AI practice and development. So, We've had a couple of people on who've had kind of long careers in in financial services. It seems like the kind of place to have a good grounding on like loads of different areas. So like data governance, for example, or even just like getting projects done. Did you find that that, that kind of environment just suited you where you could go from project to project, work in different teams, learn different things? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm not sure I like the idea of had a really long career, but we <laughs> 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 sound older than I feel anyway. Um yeah, I, I could. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that's definitely the benefit of working for for larger organisations, particularly organisations with quite sort of diverse activities going on. Uh, yeah, it was. I only really had to move organisations where I couldn't find the next role I wanted internally. And um, through all the banks I was at, I worked through a whole range of different roles that gave me a really broad range of different experiences, but also the ability to work with a whole range of different people. Um, and and so I think and certainly back then early 2000s you know the whole sort of startup career path just didn't exist there just was not the ecosystem of of small businesses doing exciting things that there is now and Mm. so the natural path was into a large organization and move around within that organization yeah Um, I thought about that when we've had people on that like and maybe even further from that, the the acceptance to move job every 12 to 18 months wasn't really there either, was it? Like, I mean, there's the people that are work for banks for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, and that was just kind of like you got a career and you stuck to it. Um, and it seems now that we've actually went the total opposite where people are almost encouraged to move jobs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I absolutely, and I, I found that really a weird, really weird adjustment. You know, I, I spent six years at the first organisation I was at, um, three years at the second and what nine when I was at RBS. And you're right, early in my career, when you looked at people's CVs, one of the first things I would look at was how how sort of loyal are they to the organisation they've been at, how long have they stayed there? And it's almost become a negative now if you've been yeah. in the same organisation for too long. Because I, I guess in smaller, you know, startup type environments, it, it probably means you've not had a, an opportunity to do a whole range of different things necessarily but um yeah it, it's quite quite a strange shift but i think certainly for me you know the opportunity to work in that environment and do a whole load of different roles and often it's easier to move sideways when you're within an organization so you know it gave me the opportunity to do quite a lot of different things that probably would be difficult to do if you were jumping from one organization to another i've definitely got friends of financial services who've probably started and i don't know maybe even like customer service roles not even like on a graduate scheme and then working in that team kind of learning the skills as you said you kind of move sideways sideways then up and then maybe to a new team and now they're like product managers for one of the kind of key products in the bank or they're looking after a team of like anti-money laundering specialists stuff like that yeah. and like you you wouldn't get that opportunity in a startup because quite often they are so flat that you start in the role you do you wear lots of different hats but then like once it's grown a little bit there's not it's not the same kind of breadth if you like so yeah it's, it's kind of a different mindset i suppose um although a lot of people i speak to have said that even now with this kind of startup culture you can't really beat working in a big organization to start your career just to understand how they work and just how kind of complex they can be as well 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really valuable for me in my current role is having that experience working within large corporate organizations. The ability to understand the, the, the challenges and the pain that those sorts of people go through is really useful when we're we're working with clients. So, yeah, I think you know, if, particularly if you're going to work in a, you know, a B2B business that's serving large corporates, understanding the reality of working in those sorts of organizations is really important. I was going to kind of jump into kind of AI or data, if you like, but also touching on like, you did do lots of project and program management, but again, the career has banned around service design and UX. So has there been like an obvious point where you started picking up kind of more data analytics type work and and within financial services, did you kind of, was there an obvious point where it became more than maybe what you would call the kind of traditional like credit risk modeling, for example? Um, I wouldn't say there was a clear point. I mean, I think it definitely has evolved. It was, it was interesting when I was sort of thinking back through my career around this point. We actually, in the sort of mid-2000s, we actually sort of looked at some opportunities around using voice recognition back then. But at that point, the technology just wasn't where it needed to be for it to be kind of commercially usable for, for the use cases we were looking at. What What sort of really brought it home to me was that the data teams in banks went from being really really dry boring places to be to suddenly they were running around doing all these exciting things they went from just the guardians of data to being full of data scientists um i think that was the sort of the most recognizable shift and i think rbs in particular i think the senior management sort of woke up to it through rbs is really good at engaging with the kind of innovation space and, and startups um I think it still does have, and certainly at the time, had a you know a team based out in Silicon Valley, teams you know working in in Israel and obviously here in the UK around the startup communities. And I think through that, the senior management got introduced to some of the sort of data science capabilities and AI, and recognised it was something they needed to to put some weight behind. And the the team I joined, um, sort of full time on AI, was put in place in the business to specifically look at opportunities for AI. I think I got involved earlier than that probably about four or five years ago, ultimately when we had a use case that, that we couldn't solve with any other types of techniques and working with the innovation teams, we, we, we identified some opportunities to use data science to solve that or try and solve those problems. And for me, that was where it became a, you know, a real thing from a, a work perspective. And interestingly, I dusted down some of the books from my university time. One of, one of the courses on my degree was called Intelligent Systems. And a lot of what is the core of, of AI now is, is, you know, existed back then. It's just we didn't have the data and we didn't have the processing power to, to use it commercially. Yeah, I literally had the same conversation on a on a podcast with uh, someone who worked at Prudential for twenty years in kind of BI and data, and and she had done something similar at uni where it touched on some of the theory, and actually said that when you look at the theory of what she was taught in the in the nineties, it's not changed a huge amount. It's just yeah. that the computing power wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even close back then, um, and now obviously it is. Um, you mentioned the innovation labs and uh, kind of R and D centers, and we'll touch on what what you've got now, which is pretty cool, but. Do you think that's a big part in why someone like RBS can be kind of up there with the teams doing interesting work because they've kind of been brave enough to have like an innovation R&D arm where they're not just kind of doing what they've always done. They've, they've got people who are kind of trying to discover new things. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think there's lots of debate about, you know, the value of innovation labs and how should you set them up. But having people who are away from the day-to-day 
you know, looking at new technologies, exploring them and, and understanding them and, and working with the business to find the right opportunities, I think, is a big part of, I think, how all the, the larger banks are now starting to look at innovation. I think there's a, a broad recognition that, you know, having those types of teams um, and looking at partnerships and working with startup businesses is really critical for, for long term success. And, you know, I think we're a long way from the days where, you know, all the big all the contracts would be with, you know, the large incumbent tech companies, there's a lot more appetite now to work with smaller startups if they can bring something which is, you know, really unique or different to the table. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I remember speaking to, um, this is what got me thinking actually when we talked about what, um, well, futurists do from, from a kind of R&D point of view, but there was a couple of guys on the show a few months ago in London and they worked um, for a massive legal company and they got brought in to like do their data science, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for whatever reason the the senior partners are quite forward thinking and they said like you're basically going to run a startup within the law firm um right. and and you can kind of do what you want to work out how all of this is going to work rather than hiring them say to work out one thing um and i think it's the reason that it worked because the two of them just got to kind of like sit down crack on and uh, and find out loads of different things and lo- loads of different use cases and uh, and there wasn't kind of like a pressure on delivering um which probably helped yeah. massively and i imagine that's the same in a lot of the innovation centers at the banks yeah I, th- I think it's the right starting place the challenge comes when you know people start to lose patience with it not turning into value for the organization yeah, and, and I think that's that's the that's the mistake I think a few firms have made. They've allowed people to literally go off and ignore everything that exists in the rest of the organisation. You know, the governance, the controls, the process, which is great to get them moving quickly. But when they, you then want to put stuff into you know particularly scaled production environments, you know, understandably, banks have really stringent um, controls to follow, and you then have to reinvent a lot of stuff that you've kind of skipped past to get through that process. And I think a lot of a lot of innovation teams hit the wall at that stage because they've just not really thought about what moving it through into production means. Yeah, um, and that's, not that's, even, um, that's not even just in banks, I don't think. I think that's the big issue that I see with so many companies that hire data scientists is like the, the, the getting it to production point. Like it's not necessarily yep. the initial um, analysis or even the kind of the, the bones of an idea is just like how do they then get it into production or even reproduce it um yeah which is which is obviously quite important that's actually is similar to what i was going to ask you but do you think kind of designing an ai strategy um for a bank as a good example is it trickier than a bunch of other organizations even if they are quite large just because what you're dealing with in a bank is is very different to I don't know, I'm trying to think of another example, but like a multinational global construction company implementing an AI strategy, I feel like it would be slightly easier given they're not dealing with those people's money, like literally. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it depends where you're using it. I've, I've not, I mean, through the work I've been doing at Futurist, I've not seen fundamental differences. Um, you know, the frameworks that, that that we were looking at within banking are, are very similar. It's, it's the same sorts of challenges. You know, clearly... In fact, for any organization, but obviously for banks, data security, and as you said, it's not just data, it's people's money, is, is absolutely critical. Um, and and so therefore, finding the right use cases and being you know pragmatic about how you do it is, is the right thing. Um, I, I think probably what's also unique about you know the large banks is that their customer dev- demographic touches every part of society. 
and so it you, you can't necessarily you know experiment in the wild with these technologies in the same way because you're exposing it to all of your customers and and you know you need to provide well while some groups of customers like new features on a regular basis a lot of customers just want stability they want to be able to get, use their money to buy things and you know and and it it's not the right place people don't see it necessarily as a place for lots of innovation yeah. So it's how how do you balance balance those different tensions? I think is is the critical thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting you you talked about construction companies actually because I think there's a there's a parallel which is the reality is a large bank or a large construction company the majority of those people aren't technical people that you know they don't really care about AI or any other piece of technology they're there to serve the customers to you know to run the bank or run the construction company. But they are clearly going to be important stakeholders when you're implementing new new technologies, and so educating them and working with them on on the reality of what these these technologies are capable of doing and, and what you need to put in place around them. Um, often that's about debunking lots of the preconceptions and, and myths. I think probably ninety percent of the conversations I had with people very rapidly, you know, went off onto conversations about ethics and killer robots and you know killer robots if you you're worried it's going to take your job or if you're a senior manager it's a silver bullet and it's going to solve all your problems and it's getting that down to a sort of a base reality of what we can actually do i think is the big challenge for a lot of people um yeah. a lot of people have you know they've read something in the newspaper and they or they've seen a sci-fi movie <laughs> they've got a complete lack of real understanding of, of what these technologies really are yeah i think you're probably a bang on as well when you start speaking to like like you say construction or logistics or uh maybe companies that just don't have huge amounts of technology anyway where they've not seen the impact like they yeah they're 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 just not going to know what this can potentially do for them so yeah it's like that's obviously one of the interesting parts of your job is just getting those conversations in um we might come to this can't remember where it is in the notes but um one of the things we spoke about quite a lot before the show was that kind of need for essentially like business understanding. And you've mentioned that a couple of times, even even already. Um, is that one of the big things, kind of given what you do now? But even when you were at the banks, like being able to, I suppose both things speak to the business, but also understand like the the impact on the business, positive or negative, of yeah. an AI solution, rather than just running in two feet, make some cool looking model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that is is the critical part, and was a big part of my role. Um, was you know, it, it, almost the building the model is the easy bit. You know, there's there's I think uh, yeah, there's the challenge of getting the data. But once you've got data, building a model is is you know, well, in my, from my perspective, fairly simple, right? <laughs> data scientists might disagree, but the big challenge was. You know, I, we had some great conversations where the data scientists would come along to the, you know, the stand up with the business guys and be really happy they'd they got a model working and from their perspective everything was great. Um, and you'd ask them, well, how do we know that? And they'd talk about, you know, F one scores and you know technical jargon, which business people just had no idea what they were talking about. And you know, going from a world where most people's views of technology is, well, you come up with some rules and you write some requirements, you build the system and the system will always perform in that way to talking about probability and statistics and it not always going to come up with the right answers is a really, really difficult conversation, particularly if you're looking at use cases which are in you know compliance and financial crime spaces, getting business people comfortable with the idea of 
not 100% right all the time is really difficult. Um, and getting them to think or even try and work out what the, you know, the, what the benchmark is. Are you measuring it versus the, a human that's currently doing that process? Or are you measuring it versus something else? And I think that's the big challenge in that space is, yeah, how do you educate people on making decisions which kind of fit within risk frameworks? Do you think part of that comes from the kind of almost like human nature that if something does, doesn't predict something 100% or even if it just gets it wrong once, that you almost kind of like need someone to blame? And if it's on a model, then like you, you can't really blame it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that there's, I think there's all sorts of research around how humans are really bad at assessing things like probability and, and particularly things like our own performance. Um, and the way that we expect machines to work, we, we have a much higher bar of expectation of performance than we would if it was a human. You know, I think people accept humans make mistakes. They don't like the idea that a machine will make a mistake, even if it will make a lot fewer mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, in banking, we saw that all the time, that people would expect the system to work 100%, even though the humans were nowhere near that. And, you know, it's not, although it's not something I've worked on, I think self-driving cars is another great example, right? People want, if one person gets killed by a self-driving car, of course, that's terrible. But compared to the number of people that get killed and injured by people driving cars, you know, I think that, that idea of how do you, is it better than the current is a really difficult conversation for people and, and obviously has all sorts of ethical yeah, I think implications behind it. It's probably the best example you could give to anyone who doesn't really understand what like challenges there is in AI or whatever. We've spoken about it, not in this respect, but just that I, I personally don't think we're anywhere near driverless cars because, like you said, the one crash on a semi-automated car even if it's got someone behind the wheel people instantly just blame the technology um so to have that on mass i don't ever see people being comfortable enough with it unless there's drastic changes in how it all works yeah agreed um, which you're right maybe that isn't correct because maybe they could stop 80 percent of accidents on the road if we all just went in these um driverless cars but the twenty percent people would still be like, "Well, I'd rather just drive." Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's. I mean, if you put that, if you take that kind of rough anecdote into a business application of it, you can see why it'd be so tricky. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of a, a relatively quick whistle stop tour through um, financial services, and then you moved. I mean, coming up for a year by the time. Well, actually, by the time this goes out, it'll probably bang on a year. You joined uh, Futurist as a strategy principle so for anyone that doesn't know uh, what futures do and also i suppose uh, roughly around the the new role as well what um what can you tell us about it yeah so futurists are um, for me a really interesting company they are they've been around for about 20 years so that it's uh, ultimately we're a, a digital a digital innovation consultancy so i, I kind of explain we use, we help businesses with all the buzzwords so design thinking you know, agile uh, and lean startup and increasingly around sort of use of data and data science as well. Um, we started out in about 2000 as a you know, software development house to then include, you know, design, business and cultural strategy as well. Um, and then the last couple of years, a lot of focus on the role of AI within organizations. We're, we're mainly based across the Nordics, Germany, and then the office here in London. There's about 600 plus people. Um, we work across a whole range of different industries um, with 
everything from small startups to you know lots of large particularly um actually interesting you mentioned them construction automotive healthcare type organizations um and here in the uk specifically we're focused on the future of smart mobility so we're doing a lot of work around you know, helping um incumbents in, in the mobility space transform but also smaller organizations think about their kind of their strategy and and, and build products nice so um, a range of stuff and in strategy principle what does that kind of entail <laughs> it's a good question bit of everything are you, are you, um, still, are you still working that out a year later just like yeah oh. yeah totally yeah um i i guess my my role is often to lead the engagements with our clients um and and pull together and, and lead a team of you know tech people designers um data scientists as appropriate um and do the kind of the, the consulting piece and and often that's right from the the strategy and, and either alignment with their existing business strategy or defining, you know, their go forwards business strategy and then turning that into things. So, you know, what problems are we solving? What are the right products to build? And then ideally we work with our clients all the way through getting products out to market, usually, you know, first MVP and a first few iterations. And through that process, often it's coaching their teams on all those buzzwords. How do you, how do you do design thinking? How do you do agile software development and, and lean startup? And so my role tends to be that kind of leading the team and then coaching the client through that process so that you know we leave a legacy of their ability to, to continue doing this stuff on their own rather than having to come back and employ people like us over and over again for every new initiative. Yeah, I quite like um, when you speak to the kind of consultancies like what you guys do, and there's another couple in the UK as well, but I feel like there's, some of the bigger kind of more established kind of old school consultancies you feel like they're and this is from the outside looking in to be fair but you feel like that their project delivery is almost aimed at needing them back in a couple of years or never leaving yeah which is interesting you just said like the whole point is to try and give them the skills and yeah maybe they'll have a new reason for you to come in or you you might have someone to go and support but yeah the kind of ultimate aim is to to leave them with skills yeah absolutely and and collaborating and working kind of with our clients is a big part of our culture and our values it's it's working with them not sort of going away coming back and ta-da here's the powerpoint deck or ta-da here's the finished product but actually working with their teams on a day-to-day basis yeah and then you've kind of carved out a bit of a niche just in the ai world i know you've done a couple of other interviews and and um some papers on your your blog as well so does this role does it just lean on the ai projects that you guys would work on naturally or have you kind of spearheaded some of that as well um, I think it naturally fits in. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said in, in a number of talks before is that you know, AI is a solution uh, looking for problems. And as an organization, Futurist was all about loving the problem and understanding the problem before we jump to the solution. And so I think that's the key thing is that it's not just about coming in with AI and trying to solve a problem with it. It's about using it if it's appropriate. It's mm-hmm. a tool just like lots of other bits of technology. I think the, the one thing we have been doing is helping businesses understand how you find the right use cases. How do you think about data as a strategic asset? And then if, if it's right, how do you use AI within the organization? So, you know, a lot of organizations haven't even really got their head around what, what the art of the possible is. Mm. Um, and, and so we often start the engagement with their leadership teams, getting them to think about the value of data. Um, lots of organizations either treat data as a, a liability, something that could get lost or hacked. And 
they they therefore do everything they can to minimize the amount of data they have or they just don't even think about data at all as part of their business um construction companies are probably a good example of that who historically have not really thought about data as something which is useful for them yeah and so often we'll come in and we'll, we'll work with the leadership teams to get them thinking about the value of data there for their business and think about what data they have what data they would be useful to them and how they might you know turn that into something which is valuable for their business yeah no i mean it sounds like exactly the right way to do it i mean i, I definitely know there's been some consultancies who wouldn't have any ai capability a few years ago and now they've got like whole teams and i do worry that maybe they just go in and like pitch data science as a solution like first before they've even really known what's going on so no it sounds like that that you guys have got to kind of bang on and also you mentioned correct me if i'm wrong here but i'm pretty sure there's kind of like two sides to the ai slant at futurist so there's like you and the consultants who are potentially delivering AI projects if it's the right fit. But you also have, I think one of the founders has kind of like a research lab, right? Where you're building kind of data science solutions for you. Yep, absolutely. I think that was where Futurist is sort of real focus on AI started. So one of the founders, Thomas Surinan, who who was the CEO for about 10 years, um, decided he wanted a change of role and, and stepped down as CEO, handed that over to one of the other founders and is now leading a team which we call futurist exponential um which was is really recognizing that you know if we're going to talk to our clients about ai we need to be talking about ai ourselves and so the team he's got is doing some really interesting work in terms of how as a business do we use ai internally what does it mean for a knowledge-based organization how does it make us more effective and more efficient when we're working with our clients in what we do um and that i think um, is looking at all of our internal processes and ways of working and thinking about the value of, of data within our organization. Um, we're partnering with um, universities, predominantly in Finland, on a number of research projects in that space and increasingly using a number of tools that we've developed in-house to, you know, as part of running our business. And that then translates into our engagement through the universities. In the UK, I've, I've done a few guest lectures at Warwick University um, around our, kind of our ways of working and I know we've been doing the same across Europe as well but clearly also it means that we can talk credibly with our clients about how these technologies work and I, I believe a number of the things we've developed internally we've then spun out into to tools that we've used with our clients to help them in various different initiatives. Yeah it makes sense right if you can kind of use yourself as like a proof of concept but also then have real live case studies rather than just like kind of potentially interesting work you can actually show it so it makes sense um so no it sounds like it sounds really good obviously we're kind of in the weird midst or or depending on who you speak to maybe the coming out of covid how has that kind of impacted the business given that you're kind of client facing Uh, and it kind of has it started picking up if it needed to um yeah covid's been interesting i think for everybody um I think for us as an organization, obviously, you know, the almost overnight change was the, the need to, to get remote. Um, yeah. And for us as a team, that was fairly painless. I think given, you know, the types of people we are and the way we work, um, other than making sure we took our laptops home, there was not really much else we needed to do. Virtually everything we do is is kind of inherently digital anyway. Um, it means I've, I've put my Sharpies and my Post-it notes away, but um, virtual, virtual Post-it notes are still in. In lots of use, I think uh, Miro, in particular, as a tool, we've seen a huge amount of use within our business, and it's great. And and actually, I think what we've 
what what we found and what our clients have found is that that there's there's a lot of benefits of running work completely remotely um running workshops remotely we, we were actually right in the middle of a big piece of strategic insight when we got put into lockdown and we were able to pretty much continue on with that without any impact and it meant when we were running workshops we were able to bring people together from geographically dispersed locations really quickly you know you didn't have to spend weeks organizing travel and booking you know large rooms in in offices where that's always impossible we just you know spun up a board online and continued on so i think from that perspective it's it's been a, a really interesting journey and it has changed the way some of the projects we've been doing as well. I think it, it, for a lot of our clients, you know, we're, we're working with them on digital products. And so it's, it's, it's after a brief pause, there's almost been a renewed focus on how do we help them build a digital presence? A lot of them that maybe relied on face-to-face -face interactions through their you know, various processes, often sales channels have, have got a renewed focus on how do we build that in a digital presence. Um, we've also had uh, a number of things specifically come out of COVID. So, um, earlier this year, we put in um, Innovate UK, ran a, a grant competition related to COVID crisis response. And, and through that, we were lucky enough to win an award to do some work. Yeah, it's just been really interesting. We're working in partnership with the Civil Aviation Authority, understanding how the air cargo industry was impacted and looking at you know ways that we can help with future responses to crisis. So that's been quite an interesting piece of work. And, and in Finland, the, the teams there are working very closely with the um, city of Helsinki government around what they're calling sort of situa situational awareness. So helping them look at the impact of COVID, COVID recovery, and in particular, youth unemployment or employment. Um, and so they're doing a whole load of stuff with um, a broad range of data sources to provide the, the government there with kind of insight in what's going on forecasting and predicting you know how things will change and you know, helping them make sure they're they're kind of making their way out of covid in a in a sort of stable stable way i guess yeah. um and i think i guess it, it depends when this web um webinar goes out as we talked about i've also been working with a client in lebanon their previous business was a completely physical business and through a combination of the kind of political situation there and covid they came to us to help them work out how they could pivot and go digital. And so sort of my role as a strategy principal we talked about earlier has kind of come come through end to end in terms of working with them on, okay, well, you know, who are you and what have you got? What, what assets can we build on? What does that translate to in terms of potential business opportunities? And then, you know, for a business that's completely non-digital, getting them up to speed on the whole concept of building digital products and how that works so that's very much been a, a kind of a coaching process with them and then thinking about you know what we build and we're now starting to build products with them which has been quite challenging given the environment that they're currently working in that's probably the only it's maybe not the only thing but it's one of the only things that have come up on the podcast where you can all that you could maybe say that COVID has been positive is that companies that had no digital kind of strategy beforehand or or they were just slow to react i mean they should now all be full steam ahead right yeah i think there's been i've seen those memes that people share on linkedin about who who drove your digital strategy was it you know the ceo <laughs> the cto or covid19 so yeah yeah i think it's yeah for businesses like ours i think it you know, it gives us a renewed purpose to help organisations with those types of things. But yeah, you know, you wouldn't clearly ever wish this to have happened. But no, um, yeah. I also noticed you mentioned kind of the Finnish team working with the Helsinki government. I saw a, a huge thread on 
Twitter, I think. I don't know if it was yesterday or, or some point this week, and uh, it was basically just bemoaning the kind of lack of quality data from the UK in terms of what the government had made available and also how they distribute it. People seem to have just said that one of the big reasons you can't really get any uh, kind of any decent insight is because the data is just not being made available. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that, that's one of the big challenges with any data science initiative is getting access to the right amount of good quality data in a, in a timely fashion. And certainly in my career in banking, that was the big issue. How do you do that? Going back to the, the financial crisis um, at the time, the bank I was at then, that was one of the big things that really came out of that was at the time they had very little real-time data on the kind of risk exposures of the bank. And almost overnight, the teams worked to give, you know, the, the senior people in the business real-time data on what was going on within the organisation. And I think that really helped the management team respond much more effectively. Um, and, and you're right, I think, you know, at the moment, the lag there is in, in reporting on data um, and therefore the lag there is in the ability to respond is always going to be a challenge if, you know, making quick responses. And by the time you're able to respond, it's almost too late. So. Yeah, I think they were doing it in comparison to the like Hong Kong web app that anyone can get access to, where it's like it's just non-negotiable that everyone is traced on it, and like the dashboard's so impressive, and like the communication is like instant, and it just feels like we're. I mean, there's obviously loads of reasons why, but it feels like we're we're obviously so far away from that. You can see how yeah. it would be hard to implement some like actual strategies. Yeah, yeah, I think you know. Clearly, this sort of period in history is going to give a huge amount of learnings, but a lot of this kind of links back to ultimately the kind of the culture and the government situation. Places like Singapore and, and Hong Kong and, and China, where you've got a very different government situation and their ability to do things versus where we are here in this country and government responses is, is obviously you know, hugely different and, and therefore has implications on how governments can respond and, and what what the people are comfortable with as well. You know, yeah. If we were all mandated, we have to have an app on our phone tracking where we are all the time and reporting to people in the local area if we've got COVID-19. You know, that would be received very differently here than it has been in places like South Korea or the past the world so yeah. no 100 yeah. actually i appreciate this isn't going to be as relevant in a couple of weeks when this goes out but uh it's got announced today by the uh government of scotland that they're going to lock down aberdeen again because of a big spike so like we've went from we think we're at the light of the end of the tunnel to our third biggest city being locked down again after only a couple of weeks of pubs being opened so you can see why it's such a kind of tricky thing to manage one of the other things you mentioned before the show that's kind of semi-covid related that uh, i think the uk company certainly of futurist has decided that pretty much because of the success of delivering projects remotely and bringing people together from different locations that there's no real needs to be back in the office yeah yeah absolutely i think you know the transition to remote only was was pretty smooth um and, and you're right it hasn't in any way impacted our ability to do with our clients and so as a team, as, as sort of lockdown started to get lifted and people started to talk about going to offices, you know, we, we, we started to talk as a team about what the future held and what was important to us. And it became clear no one was really that fussed about being back in an office environment. I think, you know, we've been pretty successful about continuing to stay connected and and build the culture and and socialize remotely um of course there will always be a need to meet up face to face on you know a regular basis but yeah the current plan is that we will continue to be 
a remote first team and we certainly feel that the benefits that will give us significantly outweigh any disadvantages um so yeah that's that's the, the approach going forward is where i'm sitting now will become my permanent abode <laughs> yeah i mean uh, we've had loads of discussions on this but i mean i think i can't see past the kind of blended approach where some people will want to be in even if it's a we work or in a spaces or something like some people will want to do that a few days a week or a coffee shop or whatever and then a few days a week at home or something like that i think I mean, almost everyone would probably agree with that. Do you think it's made it easier from a transition point of view? So, like, if I look at our company, we were all in the office Monday to Friday, no no kind of work-from-home policy, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all of us all the time. Whereas, because you guys are dealing with people in, like, Helsinki and Berlin and um, across kind of Europe, did do you think it's almost brought some of that part of the team closer together? Because you're not in a fixed location. So like, like you said, you can dial in and have some of the kind of finished team on, or you can just kind of jump into calls rather than like you said, we can travel. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it, it has made that easier. And actually I think it, it's meant that whereas historically, you know, if you've got most people in one office place and then one or two people dialing in, the people dialing in tend to get kind of not, they get forgotten about. On the video yeah. call, right? If you're not in the room with the conversation, it's really difficult. Yeah, no, in a remote, yeah, in a remote first situation where everybody's remote um, and everybody's joining on their individual kind of line, unless people have got network issues, it's a real leveler, and, and it means everyone's included all the time. So I think you know, from that perspective, it, you know, it, it needs work, and, and we're as a team, we're continually thinking about what it means to be a remote first organisation. Certainly, you know, you look at some of the the organizations that are sort of held up to be successful in doing this, people like Basecamp, et cetera, they're all product organizations. And what we're really now working out is what does it mean as a consulting business for our clients? You know, yeah. How do we ensure that, you know, the client gets the right way of working with us, the right experience. And some of the things that sort of put out as best practice for remote working don't necessarily work in that type of situation. You know, the idea that you could be anywhere in the world in any time zone doesn't necessarily work if the client you're working with, it's based in one specific time zone and you need a lot of interaction with them. So there's still things we're working out, but yeah, we definitely feel that there'd be more benefits than there are disadvantages. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that makes sense. And it is interesting to see how it plays out as a consultant business because you're right, most of these huge advocates for remote working or whatever have like a team of developers that are working on a product. So like, yeah, of course yeah. They, can, they can leave their code if they do, if they kind of annotate correctly and, uh, and document everything correctly, they can leave it for someone at a different time zone to pick up later. Like that's possible. Whereas yeah, yeah. if you've got, if you've got customer deliveries, it's a bit harder. And I suppose kind of last real question, I'm pretty sure now kind of through um, the banking career and also a futurist, I'm sure you've kind of been involved in hiring a few teams and, uh, and different people. Um, is there anything that you found that's kind of worked really well um, for build and kind of like high performing teams that you can, you can manage? Yeah. Done lots of that. Um, yeah. I think, I think, I think the first one is don't always assume you have to hire as well. I think, you know, generally speaking, the view is, oh, we need to go and get some external talent and, and often looking at the potential of the people you've already got, um, can be can be the right start in place. Um, a great example, actually, from the, the banking space is the, the team that was working on one of the early projects that I think all banks did was the, the whole chatbot situation, right? And the reality is there's, there's some AI in chatbots, but not a huge amount, certainly, you know, the packaged up tools. And we found actually it was better to use existing customer service staff and train them up on how to use the, the AI tools than it was to try and teach 
technical people how to serve customers <laughs> so you know i think that's a good example where you know look at the kind of the broad set of skills you've got within the business um i, I think then for me when i'm when you're recruiting I, I listen really carefully to the language people use about their personal role and what they achieved in the context of the team you know f- for me it's all about how a team works together and and the kind of the the whole rather than the individuals um, and hiring, you know, to help increase what I call collective intelligence, which is of the team. I've just finished reading a really good book called Rebel Ideas by a guy called Matthew Said, and he talks a lot about that idea, which is, you know, diversity should be about building the, the overall collective intelligence of the team and having complementary skills within that team within the domain you're interested in. And to me, that's really key. And, you know, therefore, Anybody that comes in and wants to be the Lone Ranger, the kind of hero rock star, is is not the kind of person that I'd be interested in hiring and certainly culturally is not the kind of person that would fit here at Futurist. I think we, we, we ran a, a team session around our sort of values and mission a, a few weeks ago and there was a great quote that somebody put up around the types of people we wanted to hire and it, it was sort of along the lines of you should check your ego at the door. You're not a rock star, a ninja or a guru, just grow up. And so I think, you know, for me, that's really important. It's people that can bring their specific skill sets, but work as part of the team. Yeah, I think is is the critical thing. And then once you've got that team continuing to to talk and reflect on culture and values and who you are and create a safe, trusting environment for people to to have those conversations. That's the, I think, the key to me. It's not just about going out and hiring the best person in the market. It's about creating a a team culture. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing worse than, hiring someone that that kind of completely ruins an entire culture you're essentially taking years to build i'm glad that you mentioned the rockstar thing i'm glad that that seems to have disappeared admittedly it was mostly from hiring companies rather than people but if anyone yeah. did have that as a kind of linkedin title it's just the biggest red flag i've ever seen in my life <laughs> um, yeah, yeah i guess they you see, you'd probably see a few of those don't you? <laughs> yeah it's just like the fact that they took the time to type that just it worries me but yeah, it seems to have gone, which is good. Uh, no, I think that was, I think that's bang on. And actually, it's, it's, I don't think anyone's mentioned it before, but yeah, like not necessarily going straight out to market. And even if you do, maybe for something slightly different, because you can train someone else in house to do the other thing you need. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's really good advice, um, especially just now. So, uh, just kind of very lastly, where is, um, the best place for people to kind of find, uh, I suppose you, but also Futurist um, on social media or anywhere else that, that you guys pop up? Yeah, um, I mean, Futurist is, is just futurist.com. That's where, you know, all the information about us as a business. I think there's quite a few bits and pieces around our AI and data work. We've got a kind of a, an AI and data handbook, which can be downloaded from there, which has got sort of top tips. Um, nice. Me personally, sort of work-wise, I think most of my stuff goes on to LinkedIn and uh, my personal website which is tom-castle.com but that i'm not particularly active on that unfortunately um so yeah linkedin's probably the best place to find me personally and what i'm up to nice i'll tag both when we um sort it out uh and post it i'll have you tagged in and uh, in futurists and then people can kind of catch up and, uh, and reach out if they want to but yeah no thanks very much for joining it was really good to have a chat and see where or what what you guys are doing but also kind of where, where you've come from to get into this kind of weird and wonderful world of ai Yep, no problem at all. 
As I said, really interesting guy, coming from a slightly different angle, uh, and futurists seem like they've got their head switched, kind of head switched on if you like, when it comes to how to do AI and data projects for customers as a consultancy. Um, so really good to pick his brains and see how they work, uh, so please do check them out. Um, thanks for listening and thank you to Cathcar for sponsoring, and we will be back very soon with another episode of How AI Built This, but bye for now.